Greetings, fellowship family and guests who are joining us, watching online. We're so glad that you're here. I'm Pastor Brad here at Fellowship of Wildwood, and uh, just excited to be able to open God's Word with you this morning as we continue studying the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this, this series has been a hard-hitting series, and it's going to be that again. But as we've been looking at Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that Jesus has expanded his ministry at this time. He's been in Galilee, he's hitting all the different places of Galilee, but yet the people are swarming towards him because of his radical message that they are hearing him proclaim. Matthew chapter 5 verse 23 tells us that Jesus had three elements to his ministry. The first one was he taught in the synagogues. The second, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. And the third, he was healing disease, showing that he was the long-awaited Messiah with signs and wonders. And Matthew, for us, here in chapter 5 through 7, provides us an example of what Jesus' message about the kingdom was really all about. As a master teacher, Jesus spoke. As a master teacher and the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, here the king is speaking to us about the kingdom. Some, of, uh, uh, some have even called this the king's manifesto. We've seen throughout our time together, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, that the, the sermon can really be summarized in this way. Life in God's kingdom. Life in God's kingdom. And as we've seen, the king is present, therefore the kingdom has begun. It's begun to be inaugurated, right? We have this, this concept that we've talked about already of this already and not yet. We find uh, Jesus' call for obedience to be something that we're to, to take and to live this kingdom-centered life now. But yet we know that this is not the full fulfillment of the kingdom promises that God has made in the past or that Jesus makes uh, here in this sermon. So as we come together, as we reflect on this, as we reflect on this hard-hitting sermon, I just want you to be thinking about the way in which it would have come across to the original audience. They knew that Jesus was not just any other rabbi or any other teacher. And the, the author of uh, Matthew tells us this at the end of this very sermon. He says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Part of this hard-hitting sermon has really revolved around chapter 5, verse 12, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, get this, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did not seek to transform the commands of God. We've looked at that for the past two weeks. But rather, he seeks to show us that the outward observance of the law, just outward appearance of what God has called us to do is not what he's desiring. No, it's an inner reality that's the ultimate intention of God's law. It is a heart transformation that is then seen through the fruit of our lives, seen through the good works that we are to do in which those around us will glorify our God, our Father, who is in heaven. We've seen a number of different sample cases in which Jesus has shown that the teachers of the day, uh, although they were saying the words of what the Scripture said, they were not leading the people in true heart repentance, true heart transformation, true heart change. Jesus, in addressing murder and adultery, lying, 
giving, prayer, and fasting, he's probing the listener and he's probing our hearts as well to the underlying motives, desires, and thought that are there. It sort of reminds me of what the author of Hebrews has to say. The author of Hebrews says concerning the word of God and concerning being in the sight of God that we are open and laid bare. We're naked. We're exposed. You see, we're unable to hide from God. And this passage, as I've said a couple of times already, it's going to be hard-hitting for us. It's going to be hard-hitting to to the original audience in Jesus' day. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be looking at it. Let's, let's study God's word together. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. The sermon today I've entitled First Priority. And the main idea that I want us to gather from the scripture and to walk away with is this. Life in God's kingdom calls for singular devotion while trusting our compassionate Father regarding earthly needs. So I'm going to repeat that, two parts to this that we'll look at today. Life in God's kingdom calls for singular devotion, while trusting our compassionate Father regarding earthly needs. Here we see the first part of this, life in God's kingdom calls for singular In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, look with me as I read. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. As we think about this singular devotion, an illustration came to my mind. I am a sports fan. I am a sports fanatic. And there has not been much of that occurring to be able to watch on TV. So one of the things that has come on is a a 30-30 presentation about the Chicago Bulls and about Michael Jordan. And if you watched any of that, you'll, you'll see that, in my opinion, not trying to to, to make this a, a, a wrestling match, but Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time when it comes to basketball, right? He's not the best teammate. He uh, holds petty grudges from the documentary, but yet when his feet step on the floor, his desire, his singular focus, his, his singular devotion is to win. In fact, one of his very teammates said this about him. He wants to put his foot on the throat of those that he's playing against. I think we'd call that singular devotion. But yet there's another one, another example that I want to contrast with that. This individual shows singular devotion as well. This is Joyce Lynn. Joyce, a 40-year-old, earned her bachelor and master's degree in engineering from MIT. She served for a decade in cybersecurity cyber for the U.S. Air Force as well as private contractors. 
And she felt God's call on her life. So she went to seminary, and while in seminary, she took an internship where she went to Papua, Indonesia, with Mission Aviation Fellowship. And their mission is this, to share the love of Jesus Christ through aviation and technology so that isolated people, those people who don't have contact with others, may know and be physically and spiritually transformed by the gospel. After her internship in Papua, she committed herself to returning and serving as a pilot. And on May 12th of this year, she was flying school supplies as well as COVID testing materials when her airplane crashed and she did not survive. Mission Aviation Fellowship had this to say about Joyce. They said, Joyce was a light reflecting Jesus, and she will be deeply missed. In fact, it was noted that months prior to the accident, Joyce even acknowledged that that could very well be the case while she was flying her plane at any time an accident like that could happen. But yet she made this statement. The presence of God has given the Papuan people hope a real hope that I share. Would you say that Joyce had a singular devotion? We've seen two examples here. The example of Michael Jordan, the example of Joyce Lynn. One you've probably heard of, maybe one you've never heard of. But how are these examples of singular devotion different? What makes one different from the other? We find that here in this passage that we just read. And Jesus, as a master teacher, he is going to explain this concept of singular devotion by looking at three metaphors to communicate that kingdom living involves this singular devotion. Look with me once again at verses 19 through 21. We see here Jesus using the first metaphor of treasure. And we find two different treasures here. In fact, it's interesting that verse 19 and verse 20 really uh, replicates itself in, in its terminology outside of a couple of things. First, the location where the treasure is found. In verse 19, it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. Why? Because when it is stored up here on earth, these things can destroy it. Look at it. Moth can destroy it. Rust, or literally the eating, can destroy it. Whether this is eating fine metals or whether this is eating of crops that were so essential in the day. But then also thieves can break in and can steal. This is a, this is a secretive mission of, of a thief, to break in. Literally, it's said they're digging through, probably digging through the, the clay-based walls that are there, trying to get the possessions of the owner of the home. Here Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where these things cause them to literally disappear. No, in contrast to that, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where none of these things are allowed to take them away. I want you to know, and this is an important thing in this passage, It's the attitude about the treasure, about the possessions that Jesus is addressing, not the amount of the possessions. 
It's the attitude that one gives to their possessions, that one gives to their treasure, not the amount that Jesus is discussing here. And I think there's danger here on both sides if we begin to think about the amount of treasures that we have. First, maybe you don't have much treasure. Maybe you look at your life, you look at your bank account, you look at uh, the way COVID has affected your bank account, and you go, I don't have much. Well, what this uh, not storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven don't have much is this. You don't have it, but you desire it. You want to do anything and everything to get it. Another side of that, though, could be that you have sufficiency, you have abundant treasures, and therefore you think that you're self-sufficient. There are dangers on both sides. But as I was looking at this passage, I began to ask myself this question. We understand what it is to store up treasures on earth, but how does one store up treasures in heaven? I mean, I think that's a question that we have to ask when we come to verse 19, is, or, or verse 20. When Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, how, how is that done? Well, the Bible doesn't leave us. In this text, the context doesn't leave us to make this up for ourselves. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus, in speaking about practicing your righteousness before men, notes this. For those who do that to be noticed by others, they will have no reward with their Father who is in heaven. Look at chapter 6, verse 2, concerning the hypocrite who is found to be giving in a hypocritical way, in this way that Pastor Ryan talked about as an actor, to be seen and noticed by men. Look at what chapter 6, verse 2 says, Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. We find that same language for the hypocrite who is praying to be noticed by men. Truly, I say to you, verse 5, they have their reward in full. And then when it comes to fasting, this this third of the uh, events uh, that the the Jewish people would have been well aware of, of of modeling righteousness, modeling uh, these things that God has called them to do. But yet, once again, the hypocrite does this to be noticed by men. And Jesus says at the end of verse 16, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. You see, the reward, reward is fully received when our treasures, when our possessions are thought of as being here on earth. But I want you to contrast this with what this passage has to say about those who seek their reward and see it as awaiting them at some time in the future. Turn back with me, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Jesus in talking about those who are blessed because they are insulted and persecuted, he has this to say to them, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Your reward in heaven is great, Jesus says. Now look at what Jesus has to say uh, concerning each one of those, uh, uh, the the almsgiving, the, the praying in secret, the fasting in secret. Each time after this, Jesus has this to say. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. For the one who does 
They're giving in secret. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you in secret. For the one who prays in secret, the father who sees you in secret will reward you. Verse 6. Verse 18. For the one who fasts in secret, the father who is in secret will see that and you will be rewarded in secret. Here we see God laying out for us what it looks like to have our minds and our, and our eyes set upon this treasure that is to be found in heaven, not here on earth. And in fact, in fact there's a vast theology of reward that we could study. We could, we could look at Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 about the promises that are to an overcomer. I'd encourage you to look at those. But I want you to see in verse 21 here, Matthew notes for us that Jesus' point is really to be found in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When Jesus is proclaiming this, it it would have struck the ears of the listener as well because Jesus is using a a second-person plural uh, prior to this. Uh, I'm from Alabama, and one of the things I love about, uh, about Southern speech is that we have a way to say the plural second person, and we say y'all, right? Jesus has been speaking to the y'alls that are there, but then when we hit verse Jesus shifts to the singular. It's as though he's pointing out to each and every one of them that are there at this time that they have to determine for themselves not just collectively, where their treasure is, for there their heart will be also. The location of one's treasure is so important because it provides the location of where one's heart is also. Here's an illustration. Someone might go to the doctor to have a test. And in having this stress test, they're doing that to determine whether or not their heart is responding how it's responding during times of exertion. It is a test, a heart test. In the same way, we could say that Jesus here similarly is is telling us that we can evaluate our perspective, uh, evaluate our heart based upon our perspective on treasure. You see, Jesus is not, once again, trying to get at all the externals. No, he's trying to ask the questions that really probe and discern the thoughts of the inner reality that is to be found within us. And this demand of God upon the inner reality, upon the heart, is not something that's new. No, what we find throughout the Old Testament, both in in Moses and in the prophets and in the writings, is that God has this singular focus upon heart transformation, upon the heart. I pulled some passages just to to make this point clear to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Moses writes, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, uh, Isaiah writes, Then the Lord said, Because this, people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service. But note this, But they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. 
Therefore, God is going to judgment upon them. And then finally, in Psalms 139, verse 23 and 24, the psalmist writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any harmful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Christianity is the true continuation of what the Old Testament has been speaking of, this singular devotion, this singular loyalty, this singular allegiance to God, which is a matter of the heart, a matter of this internal, inner reality that then affects the way in which we live, that then affects the fruit of what others see in our lives. That first metaphor, two treasures, two treasures, But then Jesus goes to the second metaphor that he's going to use in verses 22 and 23 regarding vision. This is a difficult metaphor, but I want you to see here that it appears that Jesus is contrasting a healthy eye with an unhealthy eye. And we all know the value of the eye for the body. The the eye allows us to be able to see and discern and to... uh, to interact with the things that are around us as we're able to receive those, the, the images of what's occurring. However, this metaphor also has a spiritual significance that Jesus is, is bringing out to us here. The word translated good or clear or healthy to describe the eye that's functioning properly actually carries the concept of singular, of a, of a single eye. You see, a healthy eye is one that is singularly focused and produces a single, clear image. Just as our heart is to be singularly devoted to God, so our eyes are to be singularly focused upon God. We understand this metaphor some. Uh, I'm sure you can finish these phrases for me. First one, we use this metaphor in this way. Keep your eye on the ball, maybe you think of, right? Or keep your eye on the prize. Both of those illustrate the point I think Jesus is making in, in mentioning this vision concept. We're to have a singular vision. We're to keep our eyes upon what God has called us to, his kingdom and who God is. And not to have a double vision, Not to be uh, looking uh, at at one thing, but then really desiring something else. No, we're to have a singular perspective, a singular focus, as well as a singular devotion of our heart. The third of these metaphors is not only that there are uh, two treasures, and not only that there's the possibility of double vision, but yet we find here that uh, uh, the metaphor of slavery that there are really two masters. Interestingly, during the time of history in which Jesus is speaking here, we have accounts of which a slave belonged to multiple parties, yet one owner always had priority. Now, you might be thinking when you hear that, well, a slave held by multiple parties, one priority, maybe what Jesus is meaning by using this metaphor is, I can devote myself with priority to Jesus, but then I can really pursue what my interests are 
on my own. Jesus makes sure that that is not what we understand to be the case here. Jesus does not permit such divided loyalty. You see, the Bible says that Jesus is our curios, our Lord, our master. And we are his doulos. We are his slave. Our will is bound up in his. Therefore, we cannot have a divided will. We cannot be both pursuing God and pursuing other things. Rather, if we find ourselves in pursuit of these other things, what, what the, the, the scripture here in verse 24 calls wealth or mammon, these earthly possessions, right? Remember this earthly treasure that he's talked about beforehand. What can so quickly happen is that the things that we possess really possess us. And they turn us inward where we desire more and more of those things or we look to those things for our satisfaction. We look for those things for our deliverance. One commentator, Dale Allison, had a, had a very poignant quote that I want you to think about. He says this, Mammon, once it has its hooks in human flesh, will drag it where it wills, all the time whispering into the ear dreams of self-aggrandizement. Mammon has its hooks in human flesh, and once it has its hooks in human flesh, it's able to, to move it wherever it desires to please oneself. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. He makes it abundantly clear. You cannot serve both God and serve wealth or these possessions. No, we have to have this singular devotion to the Lord. The concept of having a perspective that's rightly focused on God and on his kingdom is expanded throughout the New Testament. I want you to look with me at a couple of these passages where, where it speaks about this singular devotion once again. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae that he had never met before, says this, Set your mind on things above not on the things that are on the earth. And then Peter, writing the first epistle, the first, uh, writing First Peter to a persecuted church, begins his letter by noting their inheritance that is secure. Listen to what Peter says in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Note this, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Note that this inheritance is imperishable undefiled and will not fade away. What a contrast between what Jesus or what 
Peter writes here concerning the inheritance that is for the believer, the Christ follower that ultimately awaits versus the treasure that's stored up here on earth, right? That fades away, that disappears. During our time of of interaction on, on, online, one of the things that's been great is to be able to share some of these application questions. So I'd ask for you to maybe meditate around the question that I'm about to pose. If you're alone or, or if you have a group of people, maybe this would be a discussion starter for about a minute. One of my favorite games I ever played whenever I went to uh, summer camp was called tetherball. It's this idea of a, of a ball being tethered with this rope to a pole that's then grounded into the earth. And when I was young, I, w- I was much shorter than I am now. And what I found was that the, the, the taller boys, they just hit that tetherball and it just spin around the pole. And I'd never actually be able to touch it, right? But I grew and I was able to, to really enjoy that. But I have a question for you, and it, it's, a, it's a pointed question. Is your heart tethered to things on earth, or is your heart tethered to things in heaven? Is your heart tethered to things on earth, or is it tethered to things in heaven? And just because that might sound sort of like a sterile question in light of the, the hard-hitting nature of this sermon, I wanted to put it another way. If someone had full access to your life, what would they deem your first priority? If someone had full access to your life, let's say your bank account, your prayer and devotional life, your social media posts, your thought life, your interaction with coworkers, your family schedule, your internet search history, would they see that your first priority is God or the things around you, the earthly things? Take some time to think about and discuss that. I pray you had some good discussion around the question or that you were able to wrestle with the question. It's really a heart question. Is it tethered to heaven, the things in heaven, or is it tethered to the things on earth? You might be asking this question, though. Brad, what you're really calling us to, what you're really asking us for, is this singularly minded, fully devoted, sold-out perspective. In fact, our students have been covering this this past semester, and they, they've used the phrase all in. That is what I'm calling you to, but it's, it's not even what I'm calling you to. I would make a correction that it is your creator, is your master, 
who is calling you to this kingdom life, this kingdom living that looks exactly like what he has just shared and given in this sermon. The question then naturally arises, if I'm to have this singular devotion to God, does that mean that I'm not to be concerned about any of my earthly needs? It's so interesting to me that Jesus makes sure that he answers this question for the original audience and therefore answers the question for us. All we have to do is continue reading and we'll see that the result of having this singular devotion to God also carries with it his care for us. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worthy much more than they? And who of you, being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was clothed, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry even saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows what you need. All, that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Once you see a couple of things in this passage, or, or there's a couple of caveats that we need to note here. First, this does not mean that we are to be apathetic or lazy in our walk. No, uh, Paul corrects that type of thinking in 2 Thessalonians. I'd point you there. Nor does this mean that as a Christ follower, we will have this smooth journey of life. This is not the prosperity gospel. No, in fact, Matthew chapter five, verse, or 6, verse 34 tells us that each day has trouble. See, just like I started uh, with the reminder that when Jesus is speaking of the kingdom, he's speaking of kingdom principles that are found now already, but there are certain kingdom principles that are not yet. And here we see in verse 34 that the not yet of the kingdom is still awaiting we still await the restoration of all things to the way in which God intends them. But there is one concept that shows up repeatedly. In fact, it shows up six times in this short section. And it's the concept of worry, the concept of anxiety. What is this worry or anxiety tied to? Won't you see it here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 30? Jesus at the end really points to the heart of the issue regarding worry and anxiety when he says, 
You of little faith. You of little faith. One commentator, Robert Mounts, pointed to it this way. He says, worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. I want you to listen to that and let it pour over you once again. Worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. Jesus also tells us that the way in which we deal with worry or anxiety when it arises, right, it should not be dealt with and we should not be seeking after the things that the Gentiles do as unbelievers. No, instead of seeking after those things of which worry and anxiety are tied to them and accompany them, no, as Christ followers, we are to be characterized by something different. We're to be characterized by our trust in our compassionate, heavenly Father. A recent poll showed that 85% of young American adults who end up rejecting the Christian worldview, rejecting the Christian faith, view present-day Christianity as hypocritical. This disparity between what Jesus teaches and what his followers actually, how they actually conduct themselves, makes our message less winsome. We have an opportunity in the world in which we live and in the midst of this pandemic to really model Christ to a watching world. Now, all of us are tied up with thoughts, emotions, of worry and anxiety. The question is, where do you take those? Where do you take those? And I want to ask you a heart question at this time. Once again, I want you to reflect on this or have some discussion in the group that you're with. What are you anxious or worried about currently? What keeps you up at night? What turns your tummy over? What causes your body to tense up? What causes trouble Uh, causes you trouble concentrating on other matters. And then when you've identified that, I want you to ask this very pointed question. How is your anxiety principally a theological matter reflecting your beliefs about God and whether he can be trusted? Take some time to discuss I pray that you've had good discussion with the group that you're in or that you've been able to think through the question of how your uh, perspective on anxiety and worry really is a theological matter about your belief in God and your trust in him. 
We've had this discussion uh, about two months ago. I was able to preach on Philippians chapter 4, and we looked at what Paul has to say, where he says, stop being anxious, and yet your mind should be on things that are honorable and pure. And he gives us eight of these different things that we should be dwelling on. I would point you to that once again. Just as the original hearers heard this, and they understood that this was a hard-hitting topic, so is it, hopefully, uh, by the Holy Spirit convicting our hearts, right? That life in God's kingdom calls for us, calls us to this singular devotion to God while also trusting God, our, our compassionate Father, regarding these earthly needs that we have. I don't know about you, but in taking this assessment and even preaching this sermon and preparing for it, I found that I graded myself with some failing grades. Maybe you're like me in that respect. Aren't you so glad that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the forgiveness of God that that flows over us, that flows over our, our thoughts of worry and anxiety, that we can go to him, seek repentance and forgiveness for our sin. It's not by our merit or by our works that we receive this forgiveness. No, it has been lavished upon us, grace upon grace. But just because God's grace is lavished upon us, Paul wants to make sure that we understand that we're not to go on sinning that grace may abound. No, let us ask. Let us be challenged to ask the Spirit of God to reveal areas in our life where we demonstrate that we are more tethered to this world than tethered to the things above. That our mind dwells on more earthly things than heavenly things. Let's find ways to replace these worldly pursuits, these earthly pursuits, these pursuits of possessions that are found here on earth. Let's replace those with kingdom-focused pursuits and a radical righteousness that Jesus calls us to display so that the world around us will see the glory of our God. Maybe you're joining us here this morning, and you don't know this forgiveness. Maybe you're on a, what I like to call a performance treadmill, where you're thinking, the more I work, the closer I can get to what I really want, my goal. The gospel is not a performance treadmill. Maybe you've been chasing after the treasures of this world and you realize that they'll fade away. Maybe you're with us today and you find yourself constantly being controlled by anxious thoughts and you're constantly worried about things that are out of your control. The thing I want to share with you is this. The gospel meets you where you are, but it does not leave you there. The gospel gives us an answer to how to deal with those anxious thoughts, those worried thoughts, how to have our treasure not found here on earth, but in heaven, how to give ourselves over to our Lord and master, the very creator of our souls. I want you to know that we're not perfect examples. As Christ followers, you will not find a perfect example of what Christ is speaking of here in the Sermon on the Mount, we continually need God's transforming power in our lives. However, we have met Jesus, 
our rescuer. And to use the words of Robert Frost's poem, that has made all the difference. We would love to share with you how you can know Jesus and maybe have discussions about how the fruit of your life can change with this inner reality, this heart transformation that Jesus is calling for here in the Sermon on the Mount. Feel free to email us at info at fellowshipofwildwood.org and just share with us maybe in the tagline, I want to know more about Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we come before you thankful for who you are. Thankful, Lord, that you are our creator. Thankful, Lord, that you love us, that you care for us. Lord, that you are a compassionate, heavenly father who knows all of our needs. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for everyone listening, Lord, that we would be challenged this week to ask the question about whether our heart is tethered to things above or tethered to this earth. And Lord, that we would repent, Lord, where we need to and give up those things, those worldly pursuits of mammon, those worldly pursuits of of worldly, earthly things. Lord, and we would make you the priority in our lives, trusting you to take care of all the earthly needs that we have. So Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, use your word to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, and then also to show us the marvelous grace that can be found Uh, in you, Lord. Forgiveness can be found in you, Lord, because of your mercy bestowed upon us, Lord, who follow after you, who cling to you, who trust in you above all other things. These things I pray in your name. Amen.